Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. And I'm Lizzie Burden. This is your daily guide to the corridors of power. Oh, it must be pretty tricky right now, though. Quasi Quarteng saying sorry, sort of, uh, for the mini budget. I think really that is the key takeaway in terms of the economy this morning, as we got those GDP figures that show just how bad things are, Lizzie. Was he really saying sorry? Mm. Doesn't seem like it. And Jeremy Hunt's come out and said, that uh, it's really not appropriate to be blaming the big picture for the 44 days of trussonomics. And let's not forget, if you look at that budget, what really upset the markets was that you had this massive untargeted energy bailout. You had all these unfunded tax cuts. They undermined the UK's economic institutions, not not to mention the fact that it was politically unpalatable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bloomberg Intelligence talking about Britain's prospects worse in the coming quarters because you've got fiscal tightening, restrictive monetary policy, you've got a global slowdown in the background of a cost of living crisis. It's really hard to kind of be positive now, even though in six days time, you've got the autumn statement. Recession looms if in the last three months of the year we have a contraction in GDP. The UK is now um, the group of seven economy that has yet to fully recover from the pandemic the only one so we're going to spend a bit of time unpacking uh, winter is coming uh, in the UK with our UK economy reporter Phil Aldrich. Philip thanks so much for being with us on radio so look we've had let's start with the autumn statement briefings loads and loads of briefings it would seem or at least speculation about what is going to be in this delayed budget come next week what do you think is actually on the table well you've got to think about what his incentives are and he's got to you know there is this recession and he's got to balance the book so he's got to find a balance between supporting the economy and fiscal credibility which in theory would point towards backloading as much of the hardship as he can so um there's been reports uh, that uh, there's th- this kind of stealth tax stealth income tax through uh, freezing the thresholds uh for an extra couple of years that will drag more people into higher rates and capture more of their income for tax purposes so that that seems very likely because that'll be towards the end of the, the forecast period. So we're assuming that his his he's going to have to balance the books within about five years. Or not balance the books by what I mean is he's going to have to bring debt down as a share of GDP. That'll be his target, I think. And so he can, by uh, extending the income uh, income tax thresholds for those extra couple of years, he'll get some more revenue. And then there's also talk about... Um, uh, spending uh, on the spending cut side, mm. what you do is uh, at the 
again at, after this particular spending review period is over um, you then you don't freeze the budgets of the departments but you let them rise only in line with inflation or only just above inflation so they can declare real-term increases but that is lower than what is currently penciled into the budgets beyond the spending the current spending round so you save money in that f and that way but also but again it's 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 later in the parliament it's later in the uh, in the forecast period so towards the end of the five years coming that you start to get that money because you need the 50 billion in 2027 2028 you don't need to get the 50 billion that you know tomorrow and of course one of the ways that is being talked about potentially making a saving is delaying or cancelling infrastructure projects because it's yeah. easier to not notice shovels not going in the ground than say other cuts but given that infrastructure is such a crucial part of levelling up and Rishi Sunak's made clear that he's really leaning on the 2019 manifesto and Boris Johnson's mandate can they actually get away with that especially in the red wall where levelling up was so important well the um the increase in capital spending by government, so investment spending by government, is quite significant, not what the, what the plans were under Boris Johnson. So you can reduce in investment spending and still claim to be growing uh, investment spending more than historic averages for the last you know, 15, 20 years. So it's an, you know, at a time, I mean, if you look back to the original austerity 1.0, um, that's exactly what got, got hit originally. And and it was Labour who, who uh, that actually initially under Alistair Darling that brought in these capital spending cuts. And that, it is an easy way to, to make savings. And it's almost certain that they're going to do that to a degree. But obviously, again, it's going to be about balancing, you know, how much do you bring it down whilst also providing enough for some kind of investment spending i mean there, and obviously there are other there are other things on the table this the energy windfall tax yeah. could be expanded um you've got uh, uh there's <clears throat> there's uh, talk about a dividend tax uh, in being increased to owner owner managers who basically pay lower income tax than if they if they were paying themselves a wage will basically their income in dividends will be captured um uh, and there'll be yeah. foreign aid is is also there's, there's talks about five billion and savings through foreign aid. I mean, you, there's there's a lot of sort of bit piecemeal things as well as those big ones that I mentioned originally. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting. I wonder whether you guys read the Telegraph piece about you know the pain for Middle England. You know, raiding pension funds is sort of particularly un, unpopular. I mean, it makes you wonder whether Sunak and Hunt have actually thought about electability as well as well as sort of being a kind of technocratic government. But maybe we'll come back to that because I, I want to sandwich in a bit of sound which was from this morning, which is Chancellor Jeremy Hunt responding actually to the GDP figures because that all makes the pain enormous now. Have a listen. If we are going to bring down debt over the medium term uh, and give people confidence that we are paying our way as a country, then yes, there is a very substantial gap in our national finances. And not just us. Germany has announced that they are controlling their borrowing. Italy has done the same. Uh, the United States is raising taxes by $800 billion to bring down inflation. OK, so that was Jeremy Hunt just reacting after this morning's GDP figures that we broke for you live on Bloomberg Radio about 7am this morning. So look, um, this idea now of, you know, austerity, what can Sunak do to preserve growth? <laughs> and I like this line, and I'll say that it was stolen from one of my producers who, who put this question, is Sunak actually the new anti-growth coalition? I like that phrase. <laughs> of course, yeah, that was Truss's famous uh, yes. phrase for all the people uh, who stood against her. Um, that didn't work out very well. Um, is 
he he will definitely not consider himself part of the anti-growth coalition and and, and that but he is you know the the fiscal event coming up and we have got we're, we're basically now contracting as an economy we're expected to be now fully in a recession in the, in the coming in the coming months and quarters um uh, but you know he he is, is going to have to squeeze the public finances because of the fiscal credibility gap that was left after the trust and quarteng fiasco so um he, in a way he, he's got his objective right now in on november the 17th is to is to double down on delivering you know uh, investor trust in the uk mm. and then come march when there's a when there's a budget he will he was bound in november to say you know that there's going to be some sort of growth plans that'll be supply side reforms etc but there won't be much money for growth and then come march if there's a little bit of if there's a little bit of tailwind or if he's demonstrated that you know uh that physical credibility is so great that the borrowing costs of the uk come down which give him a little bit of extra headroom you'll start seeing money i think being pushed into sort of into delivering a a growth agenda because he's got two he's basically got two years to deliver something which the country can believe in and, and right and you can't just believe in cuts yeah for, for clues on what that would be i was looking back at the may's lecture from february yeah and that was really sunak setting out his economic vision he said that he wanted business investment r&d boosting skills a culture of enterprise i wonder whether that's enough economically if it's sexy enough politically and really in this fiscal statement is it really soon economics more than huntonomics that we're going to see um well in this fiscal statement i think we're just going to see sort of market economics as in you know, we've got to, <laughs> we've got to keep the markets happy but um uh his 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 agenda is someone described it as california on thames which i i quite like he, you know he's got his silicon valley um his you know um experiences and it's and this idea of the entrepreneurialism the capital you know he wants investment in capital investment in ideas investment in innovation you know this is this is um but he, does that translate like yeah it does it translate to investors um have a listen to another little clip from mars Selleck from the city uk because this sort of gives you a flavor of like the business reaction global investors and whether they see the UK as less stable. Have a listen. Reflecting the conversations that we've had with international counterparts and other uh, potential investors in the UK, what people are looking for is stability. They're looking for predictability. Uh, I think the UK has been seen from a political perspective as just a little bit too exciting, certainly since 2016 uh, and the Brexit vote uh, and the sort of consequences that have flowed from that. Okay, so we're too exciting. All right, then. In that case, what do we make of Quasi Quarteng and the sort of apology, not apologising actually for the Liz Trust mini budget, but for how it was done? That, you know, again, repeating this idea that it went too quickly. Phil, what do you make of that? Well, it's uh, he's trying to rationalise and, and pass the buck a bit. Um, uh, I, I don't. I, he he stood there, delivered this uh, these and uh, this fiscal package, and now yeah. he's saying it was kind of trust pushed him into it. It's a pretty weak defence. Um, but I to a de- to a degree, if if there was a, if there had been a much cleverer sequencing and perhaps the the less sort of aggressively, uh, you know, almost deliberately irritating tax cuts like the 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 top the higher the additional rate forty five p being completely scrapped in the middle of a bloody cost of living crisis um, that doesn't sound um, that didn't sound particularly uh, that doesn't that definitely wasn't particularly smart but I think he's um uh, I, I there is if he if he'd done if he'd done the energy package held off until later um, uh, and then they they published the OBR's forecast and they did have and they'd actually tried to balance the books and said that, you know these are our growth plans but we're going to have to 
you know, everything will be contingent. Our growth uh, plans will, sorry, the the sort of uh, plans for tax rises, will, tax cuts will be contingent on our growth coming through. Then uh, it would have. There, there's would've ways in which it could have worked. There's ways in which it could work. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Aside from austerity, there's another looming economic threat, of course, the cost of living. With economic growth on the rocks, Rishi Sunak's not only uh, facing really an impossible balancing act, the Bank of England too. They have to fight the wave of prices going up while knowing that higher interest rates are going to be very tricky for people and businesses across the UK. Now, our next guest, Deanne Julius, was a founding member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee back in the 1990s. So it was really interesting to catch up with her on Bloomberg Radio. And we spoke to her about where she sees and how high she sees interest rates going here in the UK. I think I would see inflation or see interest rates, short term rates, peak somewhere between five and six percent, frankly. Now, the Bank of England is saying they don't think they'll have to go that high, um, but it does depend very much on whether inflation is getting embedded into the economy beyond just the, the food and energy prices. So I think the uh, we really had a mixed message from the bank uh, from their inflation forecasts, which indeed showed inflation as still increasing, that it hadn't reached its peak yet. But then in the press conference afterwards, there was uh, a surprising amount of focus on the alternative projection which somewhat unbelievably showed that uh, the forecast, if no, if there were no further increase in rates, that is, if they, if the bank rate stayed at at three percent uh, over a two-year, slightly more, slightly longer period, inflation would sort of magically return uh, back to target. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably not something uh, that that many of us would rely upon. Okay, that's interesting. So why do you think there is this disconnect between what the Bank of England presented there with this possibility of not, I mean, the suggestion seems to be from the inclusion of that data that maybe not many more rate hikes will be needed to bring inflation back to target. Why is there that disconnect between what the Bank of England is is pushing for there and the way the BOE is pushing down on rate expectations and what you're talking about, which does seem to fit with market pricing a little bit more an expectation of many more hikes to come? Why is there that disconnect? Well, it's purely my speculation. I suspect they were trying to nudge the markets uh, over the yield curve down a bit in order to protect mortgage lending here. You know, we don't have 30-year mortgages like you do in the United States. And so it was 
quite a, a shock to uh, to a lot of people when interest rates went up even to 3%. And then, of course, the mortgages are not priced on short-term rates, but on, on medium-term rates. And those are those are hitting, you know, five and six percent for the mortgage by the time you add the, uh, the credit spread. So that I know that U.S. rates for mortgages are even higher. But um, the perspective of households here is that if their mortgage rate goes from um, where it's been, sort of two percent, up to something like five or six percent, that is a very significant hit to to household budgets and and therefore to consumption. So I think maybe the the Bank of England was trying to to um, give a message to the markets not to overreact to what's happening to interest rates at the short end and inflation right now. I'm interested in just following up on this this idea of, of rates peaking at five to six percent. If we're if we're looking at rates at three percent now and, and mortgage rates for people at around six percent, how high do mortgage rates go if they peak uh, at the level that you're talking about? Well, I don't think mortgage rates themselves would go beyond seven, maybe eight percent. Although that would be pretty extreme, uh, extreme for for anybody uh, you know younger than about forty. Uh, some of us uh, have faced mortgage interest rates of fifteen percent. Um, that was quite a few years ago, and quite a different situation. Uh, so I think it, it is a risk for, for the, certainly for the housing market. We're seeing the beginnings of uh, of falls in house prices. Uh, they had been extremely high, so a fall is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean it puts a squeeze on on uh, household uh, balance sheets, which themselves are pretty strong, but uh, you know they too could start to, to look weak. So that was Deanne Julius, a founding member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. She's now fellow at Chatham House. So she was talking through where she sees interest rates going here in the UK. Well, of course, one of... The issues that uh, has made life so much more difficult for Andrew Bailey and co is what we discuss next. To round off this week, we're going to go back to where it all started. This, of course, is with Liz Truss's premiership in September. Very brief. Now, uh, journalist James Heal has a book out, not just any book, one of the rare books biographies that was actually brought up at pmqs before it was even published by keir starmer this is of course out of the blue the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of liz trust the biography of the former prime minister that spawned so many memes and is on bookshelves now bloomberg's ewan potts and i caught up with the author james hill who wrote this book along with the reporter harry cole from the sun looking back at liz truss's career well liz truss is quite a colorful iconoclastic politician so there was a lot of good things to write about it but i suppose there are a couple of really uh, good chapters stood out to me one of which was um, the turner taliban affair which is when um, details of her extramarital affair came out and she had this battle with uh, some of the um, more old-fashioned elements shall we say of her local party in 2009 for her candidate selection when she was going for an mp that was one of them uh, i think also the trade years when she really made her name at the department for international trade doing those post-brexit deals and sort of gallivanting across the western world and signing those deals with different countries and what they got up to um, i think that one was a particular favourite as well. Um, and I'd also just say, finally, her time at the Treasury when she was the most junior member of the Cabinet, when she looked like she would get dismissed from political life uh, mm. between 2017 and 2019. And uh, the way she sort of came back from that, reinvented herself, clawed herself back from the edge. So I'd say all those yeah. three chapters are really what stood out. 
Uh, okay. You're having to dig into the past, obviously, given that her tenure as Prime Minister was 50 days. Uh, I suppose yes. it must have been rather traumatic to try to write a biography about such a short-lived PM. Well, we were doing it the whole rise of her, really. So we thought we'd get two years out of uh, this trust being in office, like most of the MPs and the public. Um, so what was actually required was just a very hasty ending. Um, but in terms of actually changing the book throughout, there wasn't that much. I mean, the clues were always there about what kind of prime minister she might be and how it could all go spectacularly wrong. Um, so although I think like a lot of people, uh, Liz Truss gave us a fair few sleepless nights, um, it wasn't actually that so much for sort of rewriting the whole thing as just finishing off the ending and explaining how it all went so disastrously wrong. James, t- tell us about the media storm. You write, it's quite amusing reading your spectator piece about the, the media storm, which took place as, as you were just trying to get this book done. I mean, most authors would absolutely be thrilled to, 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 to be caught up in this kind of thing. But it was it, it was different for you, wasn't it? Oh, well, it was fairly surreal, I have to say. I mean, I think I first was aware that we'd become a bit of a meme online uh, when my both my father and my sister, who's at university, would just send copies of you know this this photo that was doing the rounds of a photo of our book with 99p discount stickers on it, saying "Please take it," and the caption: "If you're having a bad day at work." At least you know what James Hill has got a book out on Liz Truss in six weeks' time. Um, and so that was all it was quite um, meta and self-referential to see this go pretty viral on the internet. And then, of course, at Prime Minister's Questions, a week before Liz Truss went, uh, the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, mentioned it. And then all the media, of course, had to reference this upcoming book because he said, uh, um, you know, the book is out in time for Christmas. Is that the release mm-hmm. date or is that the title? And uh, obviously out in time for Christmas. So that got a bit of, it went a bit viral on TikTok as well. So... All, all fairly, we didn't, couldn't plan for any of this, but uh, we hopefully made the best of a unusual situation, shall we say. What do you think that the Conservative Party has learnt from this disastrous episode? I mean, there seems to be now a, a kind of, we are still in this moment, a briefing wars of leaks, of vendettas. We've just seen mm. it with Gavin Williamson. You've got a your party that's been in government for 12 years. There's so much history. Can Sunak survive... Surely the Conservatives will be wiped out at the next election. What did they learn from the Liz Truss few weeks well, in office? Yeah, the interregnum. Um, I think that every election of a new leader is in some ways a reaction to the previous one. So the members and a lot of MPs wanted Liz Truss because they thought Boris Johnson was someone who couldn't keep his word. He was more interested in communication than policy, and they wanted a sounder line on certain issues. Uh, after the spectacular implosion of the Liz Truss premiership, now they return to Rishi Sunak, the man who was offering a detailed alternative to her throughout that whole summer. Uh, and having previously rebelled against Treasury orthodoxy and said, you know, we're going to go and have a very you know, unorthodox plan, now, instead, they're very much sticking with what the Treasury recommends. So I think that the danger is that there's always a sort of pendulum effect to sort of veer too far from the other, other, other the previous Prime Minister, predecessor. There is a danger that perhaps you, you, there's a case of wishful thinking. I think also it's testament to the factionalism in some ways, actually, because of the spectacular end of this trust's premiership. It's made it easier for Rishi Sunak and his supporters to feel vindicated and say, look, look guys, you tried the alternative and it didn't work. Uh, and we need to stick together on this one. Um, I think, honestly, in a nutshell, it comes down to what one of this trust's own advisors told me, which was someone in number 10 who said it was, it was hubris. It was hubris followed by nemesis. The dangers of the dangers of speaking to a membership and forgetting about uh, not just the country, but the markets as well. And I think that mini-budget was much more about a political reaction in Westminster and perhaps to an extent business rather than what the markets were thinking. And I think the markets just freaked out as a result of that. 
So that was James Heal talking to us about Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, the biography of the short-lived uh, Prime Minister. Let's also look about look at what is ahead for us uh, in the rest uh, of the week next week. So we've got Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday and we've had a long discussion about what we're expecting too from Budget Day, which is on Thursday. We're going to bring that to you live on Bloomberg Radio, uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt's budget. But before that, on Monday, the G20 in Indonesia, President Joe Biden is going to be meeting Xi Jinping for the first face-to-face talks uh, as uh, president since uh, the pandemic, of course. And also COP27 is ongoing uh, next week. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.